Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Before we get started this evening, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship, ready to study God's Word and to focus on uh, what the Lord has to teach us this evening. God the Holy Spirit is the one that indwells us, and he's the one who helps us understand the Word, illuminates our souls so that we can see how God's Word applies to our thinking. And as it shapes the way in which we think, it shapes the way in which we interact with the issues of life. No matter what we're studying God's Word, even though we may be studying something having to do with prophecy, or we may be studying something that has to do with events in Israel in the past, All of that is used to build a framework of thought in our soul so that we can then address the uh, issues of life today. Someone on Sunday told me that as many times as they've studied Elijah and all the things that went on with Elijah, that uh, it wasn't until the last series that I've been doing on Sunday morning that they really saw how these Old Testament events are to be transferred over and can be used as a framework for uh, orienting to issues in our life today and applying those those principles today. And I think, unfortunately, that's why a lot of Christians just somehow feel the Bible is too distant from them is because that uh, that just isn't done very well. Um, I don't think a lot of pastors perhaps even understand how to do that. But uh, if Paul's right that all Scripture is breathed out by God, then all Scripture is relevant. It's applicable. The reason we don't think it's relevant, as I've always said, is because we're not relevant to God. It's not that he's not relevant to us, and we just have to figure out how we're to change, and that comes through studying the Word. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are indeed so thankful that we have uh, we have your word. We have God the Holy Spirit who indwells us and teaches us. We are also indwelt by our Lord Jesus Christ as well as you. And it is this unique spiritual life that we have as members of the body of Christ that richly informs every aspect of, of our life today. Father, we only know about these things because we study your word and in them we discover these remarkable truths that that open up for us the tremendous uh, horizons of our spiritual life that are somehow uh, left aside by too many people who just think that uh, spirituality, the study of the Bible, just has a place on, on Sunday morning and they restrict it to that. But Father, we know that your word is given to teach us how to think about everything in life and that is within the framework of your word that we can have real joy and happiness and we can live and survive and, and uh, uh, flourish in the midst of difficult circumstances and in the midst of various tests. Father, we also want to remember um, Alan Westfall this evening as he's uh, still suffering from this pancreatitis and the doctors are still conducting tests to determine uh, what the problems are there. We pray that you would give them wisdom and that this would not be anything serious and that it will be uh, very soon that Alan is returned to full health. We just pray all of these things now in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. And tonight we're going to bring to a conclusion our study on the biblical background for understanding what is going on with this individual identified as the first beast in Revelation chapter 13? The first beast references the Antichrist. The term Antichrist is only used in one book of the Bible. That's in 1 John. And in 1 John, um, that's that title. But there are other titles, other ways of speaking about this person who will arise during the end times, who will be the world ruler and will be a substitute 
uh, Messiah. That's really what the term Antichrist means. Anti is a Greek preposition meaning instead of. It doesn't mean against. We often think of the word, uh, the English or Latin, I guess it comes from the Latin preposition, uh, anti, which means against. It's not someone who is against Christ, although he is. He is a substitute. He offers himself as a, a substitute Messiah, substitute God, and this is the, his, his whole uh, his whole function that's described uh, in, both in terms of the first beast and his supporter, his right-hand man, his uh, second-in-command, the second beast, the false prophet, also described in Revelation 13. Now, what we've done, for the visitors that are here tonight, what we've done is we've gone through a study looking at Old Testament passages that teach us about the uh, Antichrist. We went to Daniel 7, Daniel 8, Daniel 9, Daniel 11. Last week we concluded in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we're still there this evening as we wrap this up and then come back uh, at the end for a summary. Now, in 2 Thessalonians, Paul is addressing a question that was raised as a result of what he taught in the first letter he wrote to the Thessalonians. He wrote these two letters at the end of his second missionary journey. It's real easy to sort of keep track of of when Paul wrote uh, different letters. At the end of the first missionary journey, he wrote one letter. At the end of the second missionary journey, he wrote two letters. At the end of the third missionary journey, he wrote three letters. How about that? And then there wasn't a uh, fourth missionary journey. It was actually a fourth trip. That's when he went to Rome. And in Rome, he wrote the four prison epistles. And then after that, he wrote uh, three more e- epistles, the uh, pastorals to Timothy and, uh, and Titus. So that's just easy to kind of remember that, uh, that framework. So his first missionary journey was just in the south central part of, of what is now Turkey. And then he went back to the home church in Antioch. Uh, they then sent him out a second time, this time as he came to the area in northwestern Turkey near uh, the Bos- Bosphorus and the uh, area just south of modern Istanbul. There he had a vision from a Macedonian to come over, and he this was the Lord using this to direct him to take the gospel across uh, across the Aegean to to Europe, and so as he stepped went over to Neapolis and stepped off the ship and then went to uh, various cities. He went to uh, Philippi and he went to Thessaloniki and he went to several other places, and it was there that he led numerous people to a, to an understanding of the gospel that Jesus Christ was the eternal Son of God who died on the cross for their sins, and he left churches established in each of these. Locales, and then as he left there, and he was headed back on at the end of his second journey, he received some questions from the Thessalonians. And one of the questions that came up in relation to the first letter was, "What happens to these Christians who die? We thought Jesus was getting ready to come back, and now we've had some people die, and we don't know uh, exactly what happened to them because we what, where they are, are they in heaven or hell or in between or what's going on, and so that's when he wrote the first uh, epistle, and in chapter four he talks about how we don't grieve as those who have no hope, but that when Jesus returns he will return in the air and those who have uh, died first will ascend first to to meet the Lord in the air. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And then he went into chapter 5, and he began to talk about the times and the seasons. In other words, now he's focused on what transpires uh, after uh, the rapture of the church. And he began to talk about the day of the Lord in First Thessalonians 5, 2. He said, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night to the uh, to the world that has no knowledge of biblical prophecy. It comes as a surprise, and so he begins to teach about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a term that is used in the Scripture of a, time, a special time of divine judgment, and it is a term that is used specifically of the end time judgments 
near the end of the tribulation period that these judgments that uh, culminate in what we know as the campaign, the Battle of Armageddon, and then the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, that caused some other questions because there were people who had become confused and begun to teach that the day of the Lord had already had already come. So they had their version of what we now call preterists. For those of you unfamiliar with that term, preterism is a term that comes out of, actually comes out of grammar, at least that's when I first heard it, uh, meaning past. And it is the view that the events that Jesus prophesied in Matthew 24 and to some degree in between Revelation uh, 4 and somewhere, depends on whether you're a full preterist or partial preterist, and I don't want to get into all those little distinctions, but it's basically the view that that Jesus returned spiritually in judgment in A.D. 70 when God uh, brought judgment upon the nation Israel and the temple was destroyed, and uh, uh, that was is thought to have fulfilled the Matthew 24 prophecies. Now, there's many problems with that view. The day of the Lord has not come. It is a future event, and that is what Paul is addressing in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. So he begins by saying, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. And so he's telling them that don't get upset when you hear people teach that uh, Jesus Christ has already come, that he came in judgment in the clouds. Don't get upset when you hear somebody saying that these prophecies were already fulfilled, that we're already in the tribulation or or we're already in the kingdom in some way. Don't let this confuse you. Uh, the day of Christ has not already come. Now, those of you who are using a New American Standard Bible or a an NIV or one of the other modern translations other than a King James Version or New King James Version will note that in uh, verse 2, you don't have day of Christ, you have day of the Lord. And the reason is that there are uh, some man- manuscripts that read differently and without going into the technicalities that uh, go into the whole study of textual criticism, how to decide what the correct reading is, there, there are at a broad general level two basic views that have developed over the last couple of hundred years. One view, the view that has dominated scholarship over the last 150 years or so is a view that has now come to be called the eclectic view. Earlier it was uh, articulated by two Anglican, British Anglican scholars, B.F. Westcott and F.J.A. Hort. It's called the Westcott Hort view, although a lot of their uh, various uh, arguments have passed off the scene. That, that still influences modern scholarship. And their view basically was if it's older, it's correct. And so if you have a 3rd century or 4th century manuscript and it has a different reading than an 8th or ninth century manuscript, then doesn't it make sense that older is better? Now, I've oversimplified it, and I know that, and if uh, some scholar were here, they would probably want to nitpick, and that's good. I'm not trying to teach you textual criticism, just give you a broad-based understanding. The problem is that an 8th century manuscript could be an exact faithful copy of a 2nd century manuscript that's older than the 3rd century manuscript that we have. And the manuscripts that are the oldest ones that we have, uh, Codex Vaticanus, Codex Sinaiticus, uh, these and a couple of others, P47, these are were found in the desert in Egypt and in Sinai, which is an area where, obviously, because it's dry, because of the uh, weather and everything, that it would be preserved and last a lot longer. And so one way to uh, characterize their approach to these things is to say that if any two of these four manuscripts agree, that's got to be the original reading. 
Now, the other view is that the majority of manuscripts is the correct view, and that's sometimes referred to as the majority text or sometimes the Byzantine text because there are hundreds, if not thousands, of these manuscripts and readings that were found mostly in the area of Turkey and Greece, which was the area of the Byzantine Empire. Now, where did Paul go on his journeys? He went to Egypt, right? Just wanted to see if anybody was awake. No, he never went to Egypt. He was up in that area in Turkey and in, and in Greece. And so it would stand to reason, it seems, that you would have a better, better manuscript tradition in that particular area. Now, both views have some problems and, and I don't want to spend the rest of my life studying textual criticism, so I rely on others, but I tend to think that the majority text view, which is not the same, and, and people always get a little confused on this. It's not the same as the, as the manuscript tradition that lies behind the King James Version. The King James translation was based on the collection of Greek, Greek manuscripts that were available in the early, uh, early 16th century, the early 1500s. And a, a scholar by the name of Erasmus came along. He was also a theological opponent of Martin Luther's. But Erasmus came along. And Erasmus began to, he, he really was quite a scholar. And uh, in the classic sense of the term, he began to collect these ancient Greek manuscripts as the uh, Muslim hordes were coming up to, uh, after conquering, uh, by uh, defeating the um, uh, Byzantine Empire in the uh, uh, 14, what was it, 1454, right? 1453. Uh, what's a year? Um, after that, there were so many people that fled before them that were bringing their treasures, their manuscripts, their papyrus with them into Europe that it was part of what became, developed into a renaissance of learning. So they called it the Renaissance. And it brought Europe back to original sources. And in the southern part of Europe, they went back to the original sources, the original Greek documents for Plato, Aristotle, many of the ancient classics. In northern Europe, they went back to the original documents of Scripture, the original Greek, Greek manuscripts to, instead of the Latin translations in the, in the Vulgate. And so this had a fabulous impact and was part of the, one of the major features in uh, establishing uh, the background for the Protestant Reformation as they got back to the original original language text. So Erasmus began to collect these these man, Greek manuscripts, and he only had seven or eight, and the oldest was from the ninth century A.D. So they weren't very old, and but they all are part of this family of manuscripts we refer to as the majority text or the or the Byzantine text because this. You can group these manuscripts according to certain characteristics, and so they group them into, into uh, three or four broad family groups. Well, the TR, it was what that was called, the, the received text or the Textus Receptus, really re- was part of the Byzantine group, but they were poor representations of that, of that family group. And as the 1500s went by, a couple of other manuscripts uh, were were discovered and they worked with with the text and so by uh, I think the 1560s you had um, the the Stevens uh, uh, edition of the Textus Receptus come out and that basically became the text the Greek text that's the basis for the King James translation and of course the New King James but the majority text differs from the Byzantine text by about 1,800 or so uh, differences. So they're not identical. There are, and it, when, when I study Revel, Revelation, uh, I really have to be careful because there are a huge number of differences, and unlike other parts of the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, the Byzantine text agrees about 95% of the time with the with the uh, 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 with the with the eclectic text, with the Westcott Hort view, that that text, the critical text view, against the Textus Receptus, and so that seems to indicate that those are superior readings, and the Textus Receptus is not a superior, uh, a good or 
uh, a good reading. But when we come to the rest of the New Testament, each book has to be handled differently. Uh, the majority text is better, and in sometimes and frequently it agrees with the Textus Receptus. Now that I've lost everybody on that, the majority text stands over against four, doc, four basic manuscripts for, as far as this reading goes. And so it seems to me that the day of Christ is more than likely the better term. Now, it doesn't change any theology. Some people come along and they think, oh, there's little differences here, but that's going to change something. They don't affect any doctrines whatsoever. Day of Christ, Day of the Lord, both refer to the same thing, which is this end-time judgment that comes at the end of the tribulation, comes at the end of the tribulation period. So Paul is saying, uh, don't be confused about this as if the day of Christ, that is, he's really saying what the, that the tribulation has already come and somehow, uh, you not only missed the rapture, but now you're living in the, in the millennial kingdom. And in verse three, he says, therefore, let no one deceive you by any, by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Now, we learn some important things here about the Antichrist. First of all, there's something about when he is known, when he is first revealed and people know him. And I uh, pointed this out last time. But the, first of all, we ought to look at the, at the command. It is a uh, Greek expression using an aorist active subjunctive to express a very strong prohibition. And he's saying, don't any of you be deceived. The emphasis is really on knowledge. Know the scriptures. Know doctrine. Don't be caught up in this web of deceit by being, because you're ignorant and you haven't studied your Bible and you haven't understood these things. So don't be deceived by uh, in any manner. And the idea of deception runs through this chapter because the man of sin, who is uh, the Antichrist, is going to be one who works uh, in deception. He is the one who's had, verse 9 says, he, he, is, he, con- he works according to the power of Satan and has signs in lying wonders with all unrighteous deception. So this theme runs through this section, the danger of being deceived because you don't know the truth. So there's the initial warning, let no one deceive you by any means. And then second, he says, for that day will not come unless the falling away occurs. Now the term, the falling away, as I pointed out last time, is the noun apostasia, which does mean rebellion, abandonment, a state of apostasy, defection, and it can also mean departure. As I pointed out last time, when we look at the verb form, which comes from the Greek word aphistemi, you can hear the similarity, apostasia, aphistemi, they're the same, uh, same root, same idea. The verb primarily means departure, uh, in, in, in the New Testament. And that's how it was used many times in secular literature. And if the coming of Christ can be at any moment with nothing uh, before it, then to say that a great apostasy must first occur is to say, well, something else has to happen before Jesus can come back. And which apostasy was it? Was the apostasy of the Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages around the ninth or 10th century when popes were having dozens of out-of-wedlock children and they had uh, many mistresses? Was it the apostasy of the uh, 19th century in Europe? Which apostasy are we talking about? The apostasies that have developed in the uh, late 20th century? There's the church goes through these cycles, different groups go through these cycles of departure from the truth. But if this means departure of the church in terms of the rapture of the church, when the Lord comes back in the clouds, not to the earth, but in the clouds, to take his body of believers away, those who are dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds, that is the rapture, and I believe that that is what this passage is describing. So 
the day that is the judgments in the tribulation will not come until the rapture comes first and the man of sin is revealed. So we see this order there, first the rapture, the revelation of the man of sin, the Antichrist, and then, and then the uh, day of the Lord. Now, the other term that's interesting here is the son of perdition. Now, first he's called the man of sin because he is, in his very being, the personification of sin and arrogance. So this is one of the many titles for the Antichrist that are given in the Scriptures. The second term, son of perdition, is also a title for the Antichrist, but that word was, that phrase was also used in John 17:12 by the Lord Jesus Christ in his high priestly prayer to refer to Judas Iscariot. In that verse, he says in his prayer to the Father that he has kept all those that the Father has given him, uh, except the son of perdition who had his separate destiny. He was the one who, um, never trusted in Christ, never believed him. So he's called the son of perdition. Now, it's important to understand what this means. This phrase, son of, is a Hebraism. It is, in, in, in English, when we say so-and-so is a son of something, then what we're talking about is their background, their derivation, their parentage, something like that. In Hebrew idiom, the phrase son of indicates that you have the same characteristics as the, the noun at the end of the, at the end of the sentence. So if you say, if someone is a murderer, they would be called a son of a murderer because they have the characteristics of a murderer. If they are a fool, they're called a son of a fool. In fact, in many of our English translations, they don't translate translate these idioms straight, they, they will just translate them, you're a murderer or you're a fool, whereas in the uh, Hebrew they say you're a son of a fool, son of a murderer, or whatever it may be, son of Belial. Uh, this would indicate that. Now, son of perdition means that this is a person who was characterized by perdition. But what exactly does that word mean? Well, it translates the Greek word apaleon, which means perdition or destruction, and it's the noun form from the verb apolumi, to perish. John 3.16 says, For God loved the world in this way that he gave his only unique Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish. Apolumi. So the, this is the word that is used as a, in the verb form to describe the eternal punishment, eternal condemnation, of the unbeliever. And so a son of perdition is one who is characterized by this destruction as their destiny. So that is used to describe Judas Iscariot in John 17:12, which clearly indicates that he could not have been a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the Lord clearly calls him the son of perdition as uh, Paul describes the Antichrist. Why? Because they were both indwelt. They are both indwelt by Satan. Satan does not indwell too many people in history. We only know of Judas Iscariot and the Antichrist. And in the process of satanic indwelling or demonic indwelling, this is when a spirit or, in some cases, many spirits, are able to take up residence inside the body of a person and then to uh, control their body and have some control over their mind. It doesn't blot out the person's, the individual's personality, but it does override it. How that occurs, we don't know. We don't know how your immaterial soul controls your material body, but somehow there is a connection there, and what happens in demonic possession or satanic possession is that connection is overridden by a by a demon, or in this case, by Satan. And so this is Satan's man. This is Satan's answer to the incarnation of Jesus Christ, and it is his attempt to uh, bring about his plan and purpose to establish his kingdom on the earth and to dis show that God cannot uh, bring about his plans uh, for the human race. 
And so it is this man of sin, the son of perdition, who is then described further in Second Timothy chapter, Second uh, Thessalonians two four, that he opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God. So even though he is the political leader, the beast uh, that rules over the uh, end time kingdom, the revived Roman Empire, even though he is a political leader, he has a religious agenda. He is not a secular atheist. He believes he is God. He opposes and exalts himself above all that is called all that is called God. And the word there translated opposed means to be the adversary, uh, to oppose, to be in opposition to someone. And the word there for exalt is someone who is raising himself up to be worshipped, the idea of someone who is completely given over to arrogance and haughtiness. So he opposes God, and he exalts himself above all that is called God, not just the God of the Bible, but as we saw in our study in Deuteronomy 11, I mean uh, Daniel 11, he is opposing the gods of, of his heritage, his background, and all other gods or goddesses. He is going to raise himself up above Allah. He is going to raise himself uh, up above all of the uh, thousands of gods in the Hindu pantheon. He is going to raise himself above any and every manifestation of God. Now, speaking of Allah... And I pointed out in our previous study that there are some who think that perhaps the current, man, current uh, rise of Islam over the last uh, several decades uh, indicates that uh, the Antichrist comes out of uh, the Islamic area. Uh, it, uh, we've pretty much demonstrated that's not what the scriptures teach. But last night I was at a meeting and learned some uh, interesting new, fa- new facts. It's, we live in the, this, I got this out of the Houston Chronicle a few weeks ago. Some of you may have missed it. But Houston is, in terms of large urban areas in the United States, the uh, per capita, the largest, fastest-growing Muslim community in the United States. We have gone for, doesn't that just throw your soul? I could see a couple of people say that. See, we, we're unaware of this, so I thought, well, I, I ought to make this a little more public. About 10 years ago, there were 60 mosques in Houston. There are now 300. Every mosque built in the world over the last um, last 20 years has been funded by the Saudis, and the, the teachers and instructors are all Wahhabis. Now, Wahhabism is a particularly virulent, radical form of, of, um, of Islam that is radical Islam. And what happens with all these mosques that the Saudis fund, they send, a, they send in these Wahhabi uh, imams in order to stir people up. And we've heard about different mosques that have been around the Houston area. Right now, the largest mosque in the United States is being built down on Allen Parkway. Now, but one of the most radical mosques in all of Houston is located in Bel Air. And it is thoroughly infiltrated, according to my source, by every kind of, you know, intelligence agency we have. And not too long ago, and you didn't see this on any news items, any news shows, but not too long ago in one of the larger mansions built recently in Bel Air, uh, the Homeland Security raided it because the man who lived there was an Iranian national and what they discovered when they went into his house was that he had built a scale model of a 747 in his house, and he, wa- he had the plans and the designs to uh, do some serious damage in relationship to uh, 747s. And I don't know any more about it, about it than that. But I thought that, that woke me up, and I thought that would probably wake you up as well. We tend to just sort of relax and think nothing's going on, uh, we have a government that doesn't want to use the word terrorism anymore, that doesn't want to identify uh, Islam as 
uh, as a dangerous uh, religion, all of which is wrong. In fact, there was a thing in the Chronicle this last week in the religious section that the God of Islam is no different from the God of the Bible. But the God of the Bible is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who loves the Jews and promises a kingdom for Israel led by the Messiah, Jesus. And the God of Islam is Allah, who is the God of Abraham and Ishmael. He hates the Jews, and his prophecy is that... The prophecy in the Quran is that when their, their Messiah comes, he will lead them to completely annihilate all Jews and all Christians on the earth. In fact, there's two or three verses in the Quran uh, that are quoted frequently in Islamic literature in relationship to their views on Israel. Last night I was at, a, at this meeting, as I said, and two local Democrat congressmen were addressing the meeting. You're going to be a little encouraged by this report. Two Democrat congressmen had just come back from a trip to Israel. The uh, APAC, which is the, I think it's the, I never can remember the acronym, it's American Israel Policy Advisory Committee, something like that. And uh, they, they're they a nonpartisan group, and every year they, or every couple of years, they uh, send freshman congressmen to Israel on a fact-finding trip so that they can become acquainted with, with Israel. And this, uh, just recently, two Democrat congressmen from Houston went on the trip, Gene Green and Al Green, and they're not related. If you know who they are, you know immediately they're not related, even though they always joke about the fact that they're mirror 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 twins. So we were we saw that. And I was pleased because Al Green was quite passionate last night in his support of Israel. He had never been to Israel before. He had a rather he had an epiphany. He realized Israel's not very big. And that that the missiles that that Hamas and Hezbollah have can hit the Ben Gurion airport in every place just about in Israel now. And and that was just an eye-opening experience for him. He got to see the geography, walk the land, all of those kinds of things. But in the process, he learned that within the Hamas covenant and the Fatah covenant, they quote these verses from the Quran that state that that at the end times, the the uh, rocks and the trees are to cry out, there's a Jew hiding behind me, come kill the Jew, and that the goal of Islam, as stated in the Quran, is the complete annihilation, the complete genocide of the Jewish people. And he was floored. He got documentation so he could that he could use with those who wouldn't believe a source that was tainted like APAC uh, in case people thought that he'd gone to Israel and they just wined and dined him so he switched sides, he said. But he so he got the source of this from the uh, congressional uh, research office and was reading that, and I got the opportunity to give him my business card with a couple of other books listed on the back that he should read, and he was very interested in that. Hope he will hope he will do read those things, but he seemed like a man who had just gone through a significant conversion. So we ought to pray that that uh, will continue and that he will realize. And he was wagging his finger at me. He says. People don't believe it, but there are people in this world who just want to kill us. They just want to kill us, and there are too many people who don't want to believe that. They think everybody can love us. I thought, wow, he sounds like a convert. So I was encouraged. But um, that's getting us aside from the text, but it relates to the fact that this is the spirit, as First John says, the spirit of Antichrist that perseveres down through the ages that is anti anti-Semitic, anti-Israel, and they want to set themselves up within the, and the Antichrist wants to set himself up as a god, and his aim is to destroy Israel before God can fulfill his promises to Israel. That's Satan's mission, because if, uh, if Satan can can destroy the, all the Jews before God fulfills his promises to them, then he can show that God can't really be God. He can't fulfill his promises. Now, sk- skipping the next couple of verses in Second Thess to, uh, 2, because they don't relate to our topic of the Antichrist, skip down to verse 8, which reads, And then the lawless one 
will be revealed. So he's called the man of sin, the son of perdition, and now the lawless one. He is lawless because he has rejected the laws, the absolutes of God. He has his own absolutes, but he has rejected the absolutes of God, and so he is called the lawless one. He will then be revealed in the end times, and he is the one whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The destruction occurs when the Lord Jesus Christ returns at the second coming, when he returns to Israel to deliver the surviving, uh, the surviving Jews and to establish his kingdom. It is at that point that he will kill the Antichrist and false. Actually, he doesn't kill them. He sends them directly uh, to the lake of fire. Uh, they obviously have some sort of body change, but they go directly to the lake of fire. Uh, during the tribulation, as you know, uh, first a quarter of the earth's population will be killed in various plagues and the seal judgments, and then in the uh, later judgments another third are killed. And uh, that would apply to Israel. You may not realize that during the Holocaust, during World War II, fully one-third of all Jews worldwide uh, were killed. So they will have a much worse time during the tribulation time, fully, I, I believe, a half to two-thirds of, of the Jews uh, during that time will be killed. We don't want that. There are those who seek to separate uh, evangelicals from the support of Israel by by putting forth this this lie that evangelicals uh, really the, the only reason they preach about prophecy is because they want all these Jews to die and that is just an absolute lie and complete misrepresentation. So in verse 8 we read, Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and false wonders. Uh, King James, New King James translates it lying wonders. It's pseudos. In the Greek, it's false wonders. Now, that doesn't mean that some sort of miracle hasn't taken place. As we studied the other uh, day, Sunday, on uh, Deuteronomy 13, which states that if a prophet appears, a worker of miracles, and these miracles actually happen, don't follow him if he has a false message. So the issue isn't that these are counterfeit miracles. They're not some sort of sleight of hand. I think there will be, uh, there will be really, there will be true miracles, but they're, they don't come from God. They will claim to show that the man of sin is really God, but in that, because he's not, that's why they are false. But people will be healed, miracles will take place, but they do not attest to the true God. So it, it, that's why they're called false wonders, not because they're not really a miracle, but because they do not truly attest to God. Uh, so let's look at a summary of what we've learned in, in, in these nine verses in Second Thessalonians. First of all, we're not to be deceived. Only truth applied can protect us from deception in Second Thessalonians 2, verse 10. We're not to be deceived. We have to know the truth. You go down to verse 10, and uh, Paul says, With all unrighteousness, deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. It is only when we have the Word of God in our soul, and we believe the Word of God, that we can avoid deception. Second, the tribulation will not come until after the departure, that is, the rapture. Passages such as 2 Thessalonians 2.3, 1 Thessalonians 4.15-17, and numerous other uh, passages indicate that. Third, the Holy Spirit is the one who restrains. We skipped over that part in verses 6 and 7, talked about, Now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. The one who restrains is the Holy Spirit. At the rapture, when the church, the body of Christ, uh, leaves the earth, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit is removed, and so man is turned over to his own uh, agenda. And evil will then flourish in a way it has never flourished in human history. And then uh, uh, fourth, we learn that should be fourth, not third. The man of sin is revealed after the rapture. 
So we have learned some other things as well. The son of perdition opposes and exalts himself over God and replaces God. He is to be worshipped as God. He will set up his statue, an idol to himself, to be worshipped in the tribulation temple. Sixth, the lawless one indicates that he rejects the law of God. Seventh, he's called the Antichrist, which means he is a substitute or a pseudo, uh, pseudo-messiah. Now, as we close out this study that we have had, what I want to do, if I can get to the slide, what I want to do is just summarize what we have seen in our recent study. First of all, the Antichrist, where does he come from? His origin is out of the, thanks Bruce, his origin is out of the fourth empire. We saw that series of world empires, Babylon, uh, Media Persia, Greece, and then Rome, and then it is the uh, there's this final manifestation of that fourth empire. So he comes out of the fourth empire, comes out of Rome. He's the little horn that comes up amidst the ten horns that represents an original ten-nation confederacy, and then he comes up, rips out three by the roots, which indicates there's a physical violent conquest there, and then he he becomes the leader of the the uh, Ten Nation Confederacy. That's seen in Daniel 7, 7 to 9, and 19 to 25. Second, we saw that he does not arise out of the former area of the Greek division of Syria under the Seleucids. Daniel 8 isn't talking about uh, the Antichrist, talking about, uh, although it talks about a little horn there, it's a different little horn. It refers to Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes, who uh, ruled in the time of about 175 to 162 B.C., or at least that's when he had control over Israel. Third, we learned that the Antichrist does not arise until after the rapture of the church. You can't come along and say, I know who the Antichrist is. Oh, yeah? Well, let's call 911. You don't know. We may see people who look like the Antichrist. First John said there are many Antichrists, lowercase a. Satan doesn't know any more about when the Antichrist is going to show up or when the rapture is going to occur than you and I do. So he always has to have somebody waiting in the wings. So there's always someone who could possibly be the Antichrist. But because the rapture doesn't occur, they're not. Fourth, we learned that the Antichrist may not be clearly identified until he signs the peace treaty with Israel. That seems to be the most obvious thing that he does. At the beginning, what sets off that seven-year period of time is when the Antichrist signs a peace treaty with Israel, and when that occurs, after the raptures occurred, so you won't be here, that is when we know for sure that that, this individual is the Antichrist. Fifth, he's going to have incredible military skill. He will crush his opponents through military power, both in terms of those three uh, kingdoms, those three horns that he dominates in the early part of his rise to power, but also throughout the tribulation period. He is skilled. He has intrigue. He's able to... um, Solve these problems, crush these nations, and come up with solutions. Sixth, he is the his path is the path of destruction. Uh, Daniel seven nineteen and Second Thessalonians two three. The fact that he's called the son of perdition, he, he that's his destiny is destruction, and he destroys all that is in his path. Uh, seventh, we learn that he is empowered and indwelt by Satan. He doesn't do this by his own power. He has limited human knowledge, limited human skill. Uh, as great as even that might be, it is the fact that he's indwelt and empowered by Satan that gives him uh, the real edge. We see this in uh, Daniel uh, 9, uh, Daniel 9.24. Excuse me, I think that should be Daniel 8.24 through typology, Daniel 8.24, and Daniel 11.39, as well as uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse, um, uh, verse 4, and verse 9. 
He exalts eight. He exalts himself above God and every other God. So he is the center, places himself as the at the very center of worship. Again, Daniel chapter eight verses ten to eleven. By virtue of typology, remember that verse is talking about uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. But Antiochus Epiphanes is used as a picture of certain characteristics of the of the Antichrist. Uh, Daniel 11:36 to 38, and Second Thessalonians 2:4. Uh, ninth, we see that he is arrogant. Daniel 7:20, 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Second Thessalonians uh, 9 and uh, chapter 2, verses. Uh, uh, 9 and 10. He is deceptive. He's a master of deception, 2 Thessalonians 2, 9, with all power signs, lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception. So he is able to deceive, as Jesus said in Matthew 24, he is able to deceive, if possible, even the elect. That is, even the believers. So he, it is uh, only truth, the love of truth, that is going to prepare the individual soul so that they're not deceived. Eleven, he sets himself up to be worshipped in the temple of God. Daniel 9.27 and 2 Thessalonians 2.4. This is called the abomination of desolation, and it occurs exactly halfway through the tribulation period. So those are the conclusions we reach. He is brilliant. He's able to solve problems. He is personally charismatic. He has a great personality. He is able to put together uh, coalitions of people who previously were antagonistic to each other, and he will, uh, he's able to put into effect a system, as we'll see when we get back into chapter, uh, Revelation chapter 13 next week, a system of economic control government control over the entire world that controls the money system so that only people who have sworn allegiance to him can buy and sell and be involved in in the marketplace, have jobs and do things. There will be an international ID system, and we see the technology for that today through tattoos, through embedded chips, all sorts of different things that have been suggested, but any of them would work, and this will be uh, used in the tribulation uh, tribulation period. Next time we'll come back, we'll get back into Revelation 13 and start our forward movement back through the 13th chapter and on into the 14th chapter and well-armed by our background study and all these other passages. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening. We're reminded that history does not always look good The future does not always look good, but you are in control, and we know that the ultimate destiny is sure, and all of this was secured because Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins so that by believing in him we have eternal life. By virtue of the fact that he uh, died for our sins, he solved the sin problem, his victory over death and resurrection and ascension to your right hand uh, prepares him to be the one who will return in glory and victory at the second coming to establish his kingdom, and we look forward to that. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.